Well, about uh, 15 or more years ago, I guess it's probably 17 years ago now, uh, I had the opportunity to go to South Korea with um, a brass ensemble that I was a part of in college. So we went on this like two-week kind of concert tour uh, across South Korea, and um, which was a pretty cool experience. Um, but there was one night that, that I remember, and we stayed in all kinds of different places, different hotels, and some of the hotels were like in big cities, and so they were pretty nice, and then some of them were like in little villages, and they were very old. And, and there was this one hotel that we stayed in where I remember it was this tiny little building. Uh, the rooms were very small, and the, the beds had this like, the blanket was like, it must have been made from a sheep that they knew by name at some point. I mean, it was like like pure sheep wool kind of a, kind of a blanket, and... I don't know if it was an allergic reaction or what. I never thought of myself as like being asthmatic or having asthma, but I remember in the middle of this night, um, waking up in the middle of the night, unable to breathe, and like I, I, in the moment, kind of blamed it on the blanket. So I threw the blanket off and just tried to lay still, and and it was it was very frightening, uh, and I had all of this like dread and this panic, and like I'm not going to make it through the night. I'm going to die. Eventually. The breathe, my breathing did settle just by God's kindness. I, I didn't do anything. I didn't have, you know, an inhaler or anything like that. Um, but, but I managed to, I mean, the Lord let me calm down enough to, to continue to breathe. Uh, but I remember the rest of the night, I just did, did not sleep. And I just had this sense of just kind of dread and fear. Like, I'm in this strange place. And what would happen? Like, what would, my mind starts going, like, what would have what would happen? Like, what, what am I supposed to do in that situation? Yeah, like, go find a doctor. I can't speak Korean. I don't know who to talk to. Like, it was just a terrifying night. And I remember just, like, I did not go back to sleep. I just laid in bed and sort of just pled for the morning light to come. Like, Lord, please just let me make it through. I was just afraid and had this, you know, this, this sense of panic. And so when, when the sun finally kind of, peeked over the horizon and spilled light into my room, which, by the way, didn't have any windows. It was just like a, it was just an opening, right? There was no glass in the window. Um, when, when sun finally started coming into my room, it felt like, like this gentle assurance. Like you've made it, right? It's okay. You survived the night. You know, it's, it's going to be all right. And I remember the sense of kind of relief that that light brought uh, in in uh, the the face of that panic and fear that, that the darkness of night had brought to me. After 37 verses and two weeks uh, sitting with Lazarus's family uh, in grief and sadness, uh, considering what faith in Jesus calls us to in the midst of hardship and suffering, today's verses uh, land like longed-for sunlight uh, on a soul that has endured a long, frightening night. So I invite you to turn to John chapter 11 if you're not there already. Uh, if you're using the, the Bibles that we provide, the Story Bible, it's on page 744. If you want a page number, 744. John chapter 11. And so Jesus has uh, learned of the sickness of his friend Lazarus who lives in Bethany, which is about two miles outside of Jerusalem. And he waited on purpose because he loved them, he waited until Lazarus died. We talked about the, the nature of God's love and how it doesn't always look like we expect. And God's purposes and sovereign providence behind our hardships and suffering. And Jesus and his disciples have now 
entered Bethany. They, they made their voyage, and they've entered Bethany. And then last week, he encountered Martha and Mary, the sisters who were grieving uh, and expressed their faith in Jesus in different ways um, in, their, in their sadness. And so today, we finally come to the central act, if you will, of John 11, which is really the, the final kind of cap on Jesus' uh, signs, these miraculous signs that Jesus has performed throughout his earthly ministry. John gives us seven of those throughout the first 12 chapters of John's Gospel, and this is the seventh. So it's the, the final uh, sign. So before we get into this story, I want to just remind you or kind of maybe give you a hint of what we're looking for. What John, and I think the Holy Spirit, would have us to look for as we're reading uh, this story and considering it. So I want to remind you of John 1.14. Remember in John's sort of prelude to this gospel, when he speaks of the Word uh, being in the beginning with God and the Word was God. Then he says in verse 114, or chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the, one, the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then down in verse 16 he says, For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And so as we encounter Jesus in the various situations that He uh, enters throughout John's Gospel, we need to have an eye looking out for glory. We're looking out for the glory of Jesus Christ that we see. Because John tells us uh, we've seen His glory and from His glory, from His fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. So we're looking for glory. And then John, uh, Jesus Himself told us back in uh, verse 4 of chapter 11 when He learned that Lazarus was ill. He said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. All right, so we've got the, the purpose statement from Jesus. The whole reason that Lazarus is sick and has now died is somehow that the Son of God would be glorified through it. So John tells us at the very beginning, look for glory. We've seen his glory and from it we've all received grace upon grace. And Jesus tells us specifically relating to Lazarus' death, we're looking for the glory of the Son of God. And so as His glory is displayed, we receive grace. Uh, and, and our joy is deepened. The more we see of the glory of Jesus Christ, the more our hearts uh, are turned and changed and, and long for Him the more. So that's the setup, right? As we come to this part of the story, we're looking for the glory of Jesus, the Son of God. So we're going to begin in verse 38, after Jesus has wept with Mary and the onlookers, he says, lead me to him. Verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. So Martha objects 
to Jesus rolling the stone away from the tomb because Lazarus has been there for a while now. I love the way that the King James puts this. It says, Lord, by now he stinketh. He stinketh. There's something uh, pithy and beautiful about that phrase. So, Lord, don't op- I wouldn't advise that. Right? There's a strong odor that's going to come uh, from the tomb. Now, I, I think that and considering Martha, we, we've seen this confession of faith from her just verses earlier uh, where she said, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God who's coming into the world, right? So we've seen faith from her. I don't think that this is merely a concern about the smell. I think it, she's it, rather, it's probably something like the idea of seeing her brother, whom she loves, in this way, in this decaying, rotting way, right? Just a shell of what he used to be. And so there's this, this hesitance on her part. Like, I, I don't think this is a good idea. I'm not sure I'm ready to see what I'm going to see when you take the stone away. However, the hesitance uh, is does seem to be an indication of at least a wavering in her faith. And Jesus kind of takes it that way. Uh, So it seems that the confession that she made back in verse 27, you are the Christ, the Son of God, it is clouded from her view by the thought of the the tomb being opened and the, the reality of Lazarus in his death being made plain. So Jesus offers a gentle correction in the form of, and I told you so. Don't we all love being, I told you so? Listen to this, Jesus, verse 40. says, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Now, the first thing I think is, when did he tell her that? Because it, when Jesus and Martha were face to face in this text, he didn't say that to her. He didn't say that this is about the glory of God. But he did say it back in verse 4 when the messengers that Mary and Martha sent to him said, Lazarus is ill and dying. It said, Jesus said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. So it, it could be that Jesus said that to the messengers and the messengers took that message back to Mary and Martha. So via these messengers, Martha had heard from Jesus, it's not going to lead to death. It's for the glory of God, right? Or it could have been that he said it to her at a time and John just didn't record it. Not sure. However, he indicates that Martha had known and had heard that the purpose behind this death was the glory of God. And so he reminds her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? A pastor friend of mine in Houston actually pointed out uh, astutely that this is the exact reverse of the wisdom of the world. Right? The wisdom of the world is seeing is believing. Right? If you see, then you'll believe. You have to see something in order to believe that it's true. But in God's economy, in the kingdom of God, to really see what God is doing, we have to first believe. There's, there's a, a humbleness of heart, an openness of spirit uh, that we must uh, possess and exhibit before we're able to see the glory of God behind his various providences, which is why so many hear the message of Jesus as crucified for sinners and risen from the dead and inviting them to new life, and they think, that's ridiculous, that's foolishness. 
Why would I believe any of that? Because before you can see, before you really see the glory of God for what it is and treasure it and cherish it, you first have to believe. There, there's there's a, a receptiveness of heart that has to be there before we're able to see the glory of God. The, uh, the great commentator Leon Morris says of these verses, for Jesus, the glory of God was the one important thing. This means that the real meaning of what he would do would be accessible only to faith. All who were there, believers or not, would see the miracle. But Jesus is promising Martha a sight of the glory. The crowd would see his miracle, but only believers would perceive its real significance, the glory. So people are going to go, he just raised the guy from the dead. That's amazing. But the only ones who are going to see, this is the Son of God. This is glory beyond anything I have seen. And bow the knee to that glory are those who have in their hearts a receptiveness that the Spirit of God Himself has worked in them in order to, uh, to understand what's going on. So everyone's going to see the miracle. No one's going to be able to deny, uh-uh, right? He didn't raise Him from the dead. There's a crowd. Everybody's going to see that it's going to happen, but it's only the ones who are already in a posture of belief and of humility that are really going to see the glory. So he reminds Martha, didn't I tell you? If you believe, you will see the glory of God. So in verse 41, they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. It's a very interesting prayer that Jesus prays. Because it's not for his own sake. It's for the sake of the crowd. It's for the sake of the people that are standing around watching this unfold. In fact, Jesus alludes to the fact that he's already talked to God about this. Jesus and the Father have already communicated. And he's like, I knew that you heard me. I'm already assured that you're going to give me what I've asked. That you've authorized me, if you will, to raise this man from the dead. So I have no, no doubt about that whatsoever. This prayer is for them. And he says that out loud. So the crowd is hearing Jesus say, Father, I'm praying for them. Oh, he's talking about me, right? This is for them. Why? So that they might believe that you sent me. You know, I think there's something in Jesus' prayer that really is a little bit of a model for us. He's not presumptuous in the fact that he's like, I don't even have to talk to God about this. I'm just going to fly in here and, you know, spiritual guns blazing and this guy's going to fly out of the tomb, right? He talks to God about it. He says, God... Do this, right? Father, empower me, enable me, give me what I need to, to do this. So he's confident that he has what he needs, right? I already knew that you heard me, right? I thank you that you heard me, but he's thankful for it. He's confident in what God is going to do, but he's thankful all the same instead of being presumptuous that God, of course, is going to do what I ask. And I think sometimes we can fall in one or the other of those kind of extremes where we're either, we just assume God's going to do what I want, and when he doesn't do what I want, then I get disappointed or angry or whatever. And then I'm questioning God, well, God, why didn't you do this thing that you owed to me? Right? We almost have this entitlement mentality. God owes us whatever it is that we're asking him for. 
Well, that's not right. We, we can't presume upon God like that. But we also can be confident that when we ask Him for something in His name, He will give it. He will do what is good. That doesn't always mean He'll answer it in exactly the way we expect. But He will act. He hears our prayers. He invites our prayers and then He moves. He acts in response to our prayers and our response should be gratitude. Lord, You didn't owe me that. Thank You for doing that. Thank You for Your, uh, your answer to that prayer. And so, I think in the thankfulness and the confidence of Jesus' prayer that we see something uh, that ought to inform how we approach God in prayer as well. So anyway, this prayer, not for his own benefit, but for the benefit of others that they may believe. And I think it's interesting, he didn't just walk up to the tomb and say, all right, Lazarus, come on out. First, we're going to talk to God. We're going to make explicit to everyone watching what's going on here. This is about what? This is about the glory of the Son of God, right? That they may believe that you sent me. That is that I am from God, with God, one with God, all right? So that they would see the glory of God is the prayer. And so then we come finally to the miracle itself, to the event that John 11 has been leading us up to in verse 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Come forth, going back to KJV, come out. And the man who had died came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. He commands a dead man and the dead man obeys. Anybody ever done that before? Been to a funeral? Went to the coffin? Said, hey, get up. And like he got up. This is glory. This is unlike anybody that the world has ever seen. This is no ordinary man. This is no ordinary even spiritual wisdom or power. This is something that only God could do, that he would command a dead man to get up, and the dead man gets up. The dead man comes to life. He who spoke the universe into existence and breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life calls a dead man to come back to life. The truth is, by now, with all that we've seen of Jesus Christ in John's gospel, we should not be surprised to see that the dead man obeys, that he does what he's told, right? We've seen Jesus walk on water. We've seen Jesus multiply bread and fish into a feast for thousands. We've seen Jesus heal a, 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 a child from miles away just by saying it, or maybe even just by thinking it. We've seen him heal a lame man who had been lame for 38 years. We've seen him restore sight to a man who had been blind from birth. By now... We should not be amazed. We should not be surprised that when Jesus tells a dead man, hey, get up, that he gets up. But we should still recognize the glory of Jesus Christ in this incredible act. So, that's the story. right? That's, that's what has happened. 
He's come into Bethany. He's met with Martha and Mary, mourned with them, wept with them. He's gone to the tomb. He's called, he's prayed, God, that this is for them, Lord, that they would see the glory of God, that they would see that I am one with you and sent from you. And then he tells Lazarus, come on out. And out he comes. Unbind him and let him go. So, now we have the question before us. All right, what do we see? What glory do we see here? How, if, if our eye is looking for glory, what glory do we see in uh, this story? And I think there's two ways, at least, that the glory of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is displayed here. The first way is in the actual raising of Lazarus. All right, there is glory in the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. First of all, he demonstrates by raising Lazarus from the dead that Jesus has authority over life and death. Going back to John's prologue, the very beginning of this gospel, again, everything that he sets out to speak about and to achieve and to convince us of in the gospel, he writes about in these first 18 verses of John 1. It's just an unpacking of this, these themes is what we're going to see, right? So back in John 1, verse 4, when he's speaking of the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, he says in verse 4, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Not He empowers life or He makes life better, but in Him was life. Life existed in Him alone. Jesus has the authority over life and death. So when Jesus commands Lazarus, get up and come out, Lazarus obeys. Because he rec- even a dead man recognizes the voice of the Son of God. Oh, i got to do what he says. Back to life I come, right? Just like he says, let there be light. All right, there's a sun, there's stars, there's light. Let there be land, let there be cows, right? And there they are. Jesus has authority over life and death. Jesus is one with the Father. That's what he prayed, that they would believe that you sent me. And he's been saying over and over throughout this gospel, I and the Father are one. And again, back to John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So the Word, that is Jesus, the Son of God made human, the Word existed with God in the beginning, and he was God. has always been God. He and the Father are one. In other words, Jesus is God himself in human flesh. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, he is putting on display clearly and undeniably, I am God in flesh. There could be no clearer statement. There could be no clearer argument made. He has said it a kajillion times and kajillion different ways to varying responses from his crowds. But the raising of a dead man by a word, come out. Only God can do that. So we see the glory of Jesus Christ as God Himself in human flesh. Just as, a, as an aside here, 
when we look at the authority that Jesus has over life and death, over nature, over history, if Jesus can raise the dead, what in your life that's broken can he not redeem? Is there anything in your life that Jesus just can't quite reach? Is there any burden or pain or loss or struggle or sin that is so big and bad and beyond that Jesus just doesn't have any say over it? What in your life have you declared dead and hopeless? What have you essentially sealed off with a stone as if to say, this is dead, it can't be restored, it's over. Maybe you're inclined to object, like Martha. Uh, Lord, it's really a mess in there. Not sure removing the stone is such a good idea. But maybe it's time for you to remove the stone and give Jesus a chance to display His glory in your life. Maybe it's time to believe Jesus can raise this dead thing. Jesus can repair this broken thing. Is it a broken relationship that you think can't be repaired? A broken dream you think can't be renewed? A broken heart that you think can't be healed? Remove the stone and give Jesus a chance. He's able. Right? And we sang earlier, He's able and He's willing. (laughs) Doubt no more. So we see the glory of Jesus in the raising of Lazarus, just in the event of the miracle itself because he demonstrates himself powerfully and plainly to be God in flesh. But I think we also see the glory of Jesus Christ, not just in the event itself, but in the foreshadowing of his own death and resurrection. I don't think it's an accident that that this miracle takes place just days before Jesus will enter Jerusalem and go to the cross. I think in the providence and wisdom of God, this event takes place as the cross is just around the bend. And in fact, the cross looms like a shadow over this over, over John 11. It looms like a cloud, hangs over John 11 the whole way. Because when they began the journey to, to Bethany, when Jesus said, hey, let's go to Bethany, what did the disciples say? You're going to die. They're going to kill you. right? Because Bethany is two miles away from Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, Jesus is public enemy number one. right? They've decided he must die. And so they're saying, if you go to Jerusalem or to, to Bethany, they're going to know you're there. And they're going to come and get you. That's where Thomas said at the end, well, let's go and die with him, right? I guess uh, guess this is the end for us. We're going to follow Jesus, and they're going to capture us, and we're all going to die. So even as they begin their journey toward Bethany, they know bad things are going to happen. Bad things. The best things through bad things. They know that that the death of Jesus is looming. And so, with that cloud hanging, when they enter Bethany 
And there's this mourning and this grieving and this brokenness over the death of a loved one and Jesus in the presence of this great enemy death. He knows he's about to experience this himself. He knows in just days, it's going to be me laying in a tomb. It's going to be my body that they've sealed off with a stone, declaring dead and hopeless. Jesus knows, right? He's been saying, John's been telling us throughout this gospel, you know, that they they tried to arrest him, but they couldn't because his hour had not yet come. The hour appointed by God for Jesus to be delivered over for sinners. The hour had not yet come. Well, guess what? In John 11, hour's just about here. Just around the corner. Jesus knows that. So as he is encountering the death of Lazarus, as he walks up to the tomb and says, move that stone, I wonder if Jesus has this vision in his own mind. This is going to be me in just a few days. It's going to be my body that they've placed in the tomb, and it's going to be my tombstone being rolled away. The death and resurrection of Lazarus, because of the timing of it, and because of the awareness of the danger that Jesus is in by traveling near Jerusalem, it's an echo of Jesus' own journey to the cross and out of the tomb. He's going to the cross, he's going to the tomb, and then he's coming out of it again. And there, I would suggest to you, in the death and resurrection of Jesus, the glory of the Son of God is on display infinitely more than just in the mere raising of a dead man. Through His own death, where He takes upon Himself the sin of the world and pays for it and moves it out of the way, we see the glory of Jesus on display all the more. And I think it's good for us to consider as Jesus is going to the cross, as Jesus knows that just around the corner, just days away, His own journey into Jerusalem and toward crucifixion and death and a tomb sealed off by a stone, He knows it's coming. And I think we ought to see this story in that way. And it should remind us that Jesus alone can restore spiritual life to those who are dead in sin. Remember back in John chapter 3, he said to to Nicodemus, the Pharisee, when he came to him at night, Jesus said to him in John 3.3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's the desperate situation that human beings are in. You are so broken that you need a new birth. You need a new life. Unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus doesn't quite get it. How can I enter my mother's womb and be born again? Like That doesn't make any sense. Jesus is like, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about spirit. I'm talking about the spirit of God blowing through your soul blowing through your life and bringing newness and restoring life where there was none before unless one is born again he cannot see the kingdom of god you know paul said in ephesians chapter 2 you were dead 
in trespasses and sins. Let's read some of that. That's worth reading. Ephesians chapter 2. I was just going to summarize it, but we're going to read it. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked. Dead. You were dead. Spiritually dead. Just like Lazarus. Dead. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's the devil, by the way. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That is, people deserving of God's wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Our spiritual condition, apart from Christ, is as dead as the body of Lazarus was. He'd been dead four days. It smelled bad. It was a mess. There was no hope of anything new happening there. That's our spiritual condition unless God does something, unless God steps in with His Spirit and brings us back to life, which is exactly what Paul says that He did. God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, made us alive together with Christ. So when we see the resurrection of Lazarus, and we consider the death and resurrection of Jesus that's just around the corner, and we remember what it's going to accomplish, that Jesus is taking our sin to the cross and dying in our place, and that he's rising again to defeat death and set it aside, we remember this is what Jesus does for us. Jesus dies and rises so that we can die to our sin, and have new life again and be raised. And so as Jesus stands outside Lazarus' tomb and calls out, come forth, in the same way He stands outside the hearts of those lost in sin and rebellion and calls out, be born again. Come forth. Come out. Spiritual life will only come to sinners when Jesus sovereignly opens dead eyes and restores life to dead souls. So we see the glory of Jesus Christ in the event itself because He displays His power, His authority. He demonstrates plainly this is God in human flesh. Jesus Christ is God worthy of honor and worship and reverence and obedience And He displays His glory because we see an echo 
of His own death and resurrection, which is just around the corner. And we're reminded, you know, our spirit is in exactly the same situation as Lazarus' body until God speaks. Until Jesus brings life. If you've never experienced that rebirth, if you've never sensed the call, if you will, of the voice of Jesus saying, come forth, right? Come to life. If you're not sure, if you're not confident that, that you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ and you've been given this new spiritual life and birth, it's not too late. As long as you hear the voice of Christ in this Gospel, in this good news, it's not too late to respond. It's not too late to say, let that be me today. Let today be a day of life and salvation and repentance. And I think for those of us who are followers of Jesus and know Jesus and have experienced this call and this rebirth, I think the challenge that, that comes to us is twofold. I think part one, it's in our own lives and in our own day-to-day walk with God and relationships with others to be grounded all the more in this reality. The life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ which brought my soul to life again and gave me the ability to know Him and to follow Him and to serve Him this ought to undergird all of our life. It ought to undergird every choice we make, every word we speak, every relationship that we invest in. The Gospel of Jesus Christ impacts all of our life. And secondly, I think it challenges us. Because we know that there are people all around us who are just as dead as Lazarus. Just as dead as we once were where the mercy of Jesus brought us back to life again. And we may be the only verbal witness to Jesus Christ that somebody in our sphere of influence ever sees or ever hears. And so Jesus calls to us to carry the good news, to carry the gospel, to carry the the news of His life, sinless life, and His death in the place of sinners, and His resurrection from the grave to defeat death. He calls us to carry it and to announce it and to invite people to experience it and to say, would you be born again? Would you receive the gift of life that comes through Jesus and Him alone?